0: We're at Psalm 15 this morning, and if you would, I want to ask you to stand uh, for the reading of God's word today. God says to us in Psalm 15, these words, a Psalm of David, O Lord, who may abide in your tent, who may dwell on your holy hill, he who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. And does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. God, we... We want to be among the people who are never shaken. We want to be among the people who have a sure anchor in life's every storm. Help us, we pray, to hear from heaven. God, change us this morning as a result of hearing your word. Make us not clinical in our hearing of the word, not critical in our hearing of the word, but God, make us open to hear from you what it is you want to do in each of our lives as a result of having been here today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to dive right in. It's it's a bit late, and and I I want to preach this, this psalm thoroughly this morning. Psalm 14 presents for us an implied question. And the question is this. If all the sons of men, in other words, if all the descendants of a human father, going all the way back to Adam, do not seek God, and God is looking for those who seek Him, then how in the world does God have anybody to call His people? How in the world does God have anyone that He can call the generation of the righteous? Psalm 14, 5. Where do these righteous people come from? And what do they look like? That's a good question to ask. Because on the day when the eastern sky breaks and Jesus returns, you're going to be either among the sons of men or the sons or daughters of God. And better to be a son or daughter of God than among the sons of men on that day. And so, in Psalm 15, David is still wrestling with that question. He shows us, in Psalm 15, the answer to the question. That to be among God's people, we've got to ask the right question. We must be holy, set apart, pure in our lives, our work, and in our core being of our inner man, our heart, the place where we think, desire things. And finally, we must believe God's promise. First, we've got to ask the right question. I want you to look at verse 1 and consider for a moment what David does not ask. David doesn't ask, how can I get to heaven when I die? It's a good question to ask. He, He does not ask, how can I improve my life or be a better king or have my best life now? Or just... Defeat Saul once and for all? There's a lot of questions that he could have asked in his life, but he asked this question in verse 1. Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? The word abide there literally means sojourn, to walk around in. Church, we should want to be a part of the people of God, not because of what we get from God, but because we get God the Christian life, is that we get to know and belong to God. So I want to translate David's question for us a little bit this morning. Lord, how can I walk and live in the fullness and the goodness of your presence? David asked a similar question in Psalm 27, 4. One thing, one thing I have asked from the Lord and that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord All the days of my life, not just come and visit, dwell in the house of the Lord, to behold the beauty of the Lord and meditate in his temple. When David speaks of the Lord's tent, he's using the imagery of God's tabernacle, that enormous tent of sacrifice where the glory cloud was shown and the pillar of fire. It's the place where his presence, God's presence, was made known to the people of God from the time of Moses to the time of David. Now, it's not a place that you could approach casually. It's not a a place that you could say, I'm just going to show up and do whatever I want to do. It's it's a place that you had to approach in holiness. Leviticus 11 says they had to be holy as God is holy. This means they had to obey God's law as an act of obedience and a sign of their separation of the world. The church should be a people who are marked off by obedience to God's commands. The way the world knows we're the church is because we obey God. The priests are given special garments and ceremonial washings that are required for them to enter the holiest places in order to make sacrifices in His presence. In other words, to enter God's tent, the the place of His special and glorious presence is a serious undertaking. And, And to minimize the holiness of God and presumptively assume that we just, we just get access to God no matter what, doesn't matter, that brings death. To presume that God's access is available to us with no regard for what God has spoken about life, business, humanity, is, is to die, is to not have life, it's to not be free. You say, well, Daniel, that's, that's pretty harsh. It is, but, but it's God. And, and there's no other good than God. So God in His goodness says if you chase after goodness in other, any other way, it will always disappoint you. It will always fail you. Oh, you might have career advancement and educational attainment and everything else that feels good for a while, but then it will leave you once again disappointed because there's only one good, and He is God. In 2 Corinthians 26, King Uzziah presumes that he can enter the sanctuary of the temple, a privilege that was reserved for the priests. So, so King Uzziah wants to be the Messiah. He wants to be the king who's also allowed to go into the temple and to sacrifice for the people of God. He presumes to have a position that God has not given to him, and God does what? Do you remember? He strikes him with leprosy. Now, I find it interesting that in the year that King Uzziah died is the year that Isaiah writes Isaiah 6, and he gets a vision Of the Lord, the king, whose train, the robe, his robe, fills the temple. The train of his robe fills the temple. So in the year that the wannabe Messiah named Uzziah died, God gave Isaiah, the prophet, a vision of a king who would come and he would be able to stand in the temple and not be consumed, and his name is Jesus. The only way we can enter the presence of God is through a king who was qualified to be our sacrifice. When Uzzah which the same Hebrew word word as Uzziah when Uzzah reaches out, you remember this story: the Ark of the Covenant is put on a cart, it's carried incorrectly, and they want to take it up to Jerusalem. And so Uzzah reaches out and he says, "God, I'm just going to help you out. I'm going to give you a little assistance here." And he reaches out to touch the cart, and you remember what happened? God struck him dead right there. Uzziah and Uzzah: the root word means strength. They thought they were strong. They thought they didn't need God. In the New Testament church, Paul says that people are dying because they are presumptively partaking of the Lord's Supper. They're undermining their brothers and sisters in Christ and then coming to the Lord's Supper as though that behavior doesn't matter. And God says they are going to sleep. In other words, they're dying. We should never take lightly or for granted the very ordinance that symbolizes the high price that God paid in the blood of His Son to give us life. To give us access to God who is good. So, to be in God's presence, to ascend the Lord's holy hill, to go into the tabernacle and then later into the temple in Jerusalem up the holy hill required a recognition of just how holy God is. How holy and altogether perfect and righteous is God? He is the only uncreated being in the universe. I want you to think about that for a second. There's God and there's everything else. God is, was, always will be, and then there's everything else. That means we are more like crickets or amoebas or bacteria than we are like God. They're created, God is uncreated. Now you say, well, but I thought humanity was pretty special to God. It is. We were called to bear his image to a lost and dark and dying world. But if we get on our high horse and think we're pretty special, don't forget God is creator, we were made. And there's an infinite chasm between Creator God and you and me. And to know goodness is to know God who is Creator, who is glorious, who is the lawgiver, who is the one who says and defines what is right and good. And when we stray from that, we wander from His presence. How good is God who is like you, O Lord, among the gods, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders, Moses says in Exodus 15, of course, The answer to this question is no one. No one is like the Lord God. Psalm 14 told us as much. No one, not even one. And yet David boldly asks, not if he could pass through God's presence, not if he could get a little glimpse of God's glory, not like he wanted to purchase a ticket to a museum. And wander around in the presence of God for a few moments, get some nice pictures to put on Instagram, tell his friends about it, high five, and then go check out for lunch. No, he says, how can I walk in your presence? How can I live in your presence? How can I dwell where you are? Church, that's the question we should be asking. God, how can I live where you live? And I submit to you, most Christians even are not asking that question. They're asking, how can I fix my marriage? What should I do for my career? Does anyone notice me? How can I not be so depressed or angry or cynical or condescending or lazy or critical or busy or unforgiving or stressed out or anxious or financially maxed out? that I hit your category? And you know what? Those are good questions. But if we put those questions before the question, we'll never answer those questions. There was a whole movement in church life in the United States that put the felt needs of people before the real need of people. And pastors started calling, stopped calling people to repentance. Pastors stopped telling people, God is holy and you are not, and there's only way to bridge that gap, and it's Jesus And instead they started having conferences about money and marriage and parenting. And people came because they thought the church would give them free counsel and free advice to patch up their dead lives. But they never got God the source of life. They never knew good. And now they're wandering away from churches because they never repented of their sins in the first place. And churches are still feeding the answers to all these secondary questions. Because they don't want to offend people by... Presenting with them the question that they really need to answer. How can I dwell where God dwells? And unless we deal with the question, we are powerless to pursue God's answers to all the other questions. Do you know God this morning? Do you live where God lives? Are you seated in the heavenlies with Christ Jesus, as Ephesians puts it? We've got to ask the question, church. A local church is a community. The of God's people whose greatest delight is to live in the all-glorious presence of God. Do you know God today? God's people's greatest delight is God. We get God. The satisfaction that you were made for is found only in God's presence. Augustine said it this way, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless Until it finds rest in you. Are you striving? Are you restless this morning? There is rest in knowing and belonging to God. Now, the question of course is, if God is holy and I am not, then how in the world can I know God? So in verses 2 through 5, David gives us what we could call the conditions of access to God. The conditions of access to God. And he summarizes everything he's going to say in verse 2. We've got to be pure in our life, in our work, and in our heart. The course of our life, verse 2, how he walks. The conduct of his life, verse 2, he does right or works righteousness. It all flows, verse 2, from a heart that speaks truth. A heart that speaks truth. The word walk refers to how somebody lives. The course of their life. Wherever your feet may go, you must live with integrity. Integrity means to be whole, Or blameless or spotless. That there's an alignment between where you walk day by day and it's in the path of God. There's not like, well today I'm going to serve God and tomorrow I'm going to serve myself. And today I'm going to serve God and tomorrow I'm going to serve myself. I'm going to keep on walking in God's path. This means there's no what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas for the Christian. That that sentence doesn't register for the believer. The whole course of his life matters to God. Walking in God's righteous way means that there are no places where we can act contrary to God's good design for our lives and then believe that he doesn't see it or it doesn't matter. Oh, God will forgive me. I'll just do whatever I want. God will forgive me. I've been walking my way through Ezekiel. You know what Ezekiel says? Israel just kept on pursuing idols, kept on going up on hills and under shade trees and on mountains and worshiping other gods. And finally, you know what God did? He said He hid His face from them. Do you know the face of God today? Do you know the glorious goodness and beauty of belonging to God? Men in this room, did you know that God sees your internet search history? It doesn't matter if you know how to hide it or delete it, God sees it. Women, did you know that God knows when you read books or watch shows or scroll Facebook and fantasize about life with someone else and ignore and belittle and ridicule the man who sleeps in your own bed? God sees it. The one who knows the supreme joy of living in the presence of the Lord is the one who keeps on walking in wholeness and integrity, a blameless life in the direction that God would have them to go. And secondly, the one who dwells with the Lord also works righteousness or they do right. She doesn't just go to the right places and make the right appearances at all the social functions and for her kids. Uh, events and everything that's going on in life and keep it all together on the outside. No, her personal happiness, her preferences and her comforts are not her God's. God is her God. And God's standard is always the measure and the goal of her work. So she doesn't just go in the right places. She conducts herself herself in the right way. Doing what is pleasing to God because it is pleasing to God. And what pleases God pleases her. Finally in verse 2. David tells us the one who may dwell in the Lord's presence speaks truth in his heart. In other words, the way we walk and the work that we do as we walk all flow out of a heart that is pulsating with a passion for God's truth. Those who speak truth in their hearts are willing to subject their opinion to God's truth. Those who speak God's truth in their life are always asking, is what I'm thinking aligned with what God has said? Is is what God said is that concurrent with what I'm doing and what I'm thinking. In other words, the one who can dwell with God who is good, there's three things that we see in verse 2 that are, that are summary level over everything else we'll hear. To live in the Lord's presence, you've got to have a spotless walk, you've got to have a conduct ordered according to God's will, and you've got to have a truth-loving, not a truth-resisting mode of thought. Not always trying to justify doing something contrary to what God has said. So after giving us sort of this summary sentence in verse 2, David then gives us specific examples of application in verses 3, 4, and 5. Are you tracking with me this morning? 3, 4, and 5, application of verse 2, because the question would be like, wow, that's, that sounds like a tall order. How do I do that? What does that look like? Now, you've got to understand, verses 3 through 5 are not a comprehensive answer to that. They're just examples. Right, you could go to Proverbs and many other places and get many other commands to live a pure life. But these are some good ones. These are, are some biggies. Verse 3, the one who abides with the Lord is restrained in his speech. He does not slander with his tongue, verse 3 says. The word slander has a background of going around to spy things out or spread them abroad. It means to stir up controversy to try and undermine or harm someone else. Those who dwell in the Lord's presence must, as much as it depends on them, be be at peace with others. Romans 12, 18. The harmful words, the the picture here is something coming to the tip of your tongue. And I don't know about you, you, when you hear something about someone, sometimes it's juicy. It's good, oh, that's good. And you know what God is saying through David? Don't speak it, swallow it. Don't speak it, swallow it. Don't be a spreader of harmful things, swallow it. As James said, we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, also able to bribe his whole body. We cannot seek to do evil or bring calamity to our neighbor and dwell in the presence of God, the second line of verse 3 says. In other words, we can't lie about or misrepresent others and dwell in the Lord's presence. We can't hear a lie and pass it along and enjoy the Lord's presence. We can't spread harmful statements and dwell in the Lord's presence. In the Ten Commandments, God says this You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Here, David says, Even if you're repeating what you think is true, do not speak or act or do evil to, or calamity to your neighbor. Now, this is an interesting question Who is your neighbor? Everybody. Right? This is not just your your friend Fred across the street. And we know this because of what Luke 10 says. You remember the teacher of the law comes and he asks, Hey, well, Jesus, I know, love God, love neighbor, but who's my neighbor anyway? Do I really have to love, you know, that guy? Yeah, you do. And he proves it in the parable of the Good Samaritan. You remember that parable? So he's telling a Hebrew scholar the Your neighbor includes the Samaritans that you hate. So so we have to conduct ourselves in this way with everybody. We we owe this sort of charity to everyone, even those who are wrongly attacking us. Those we are called to love as a demonstration of Christ's undeserved love toward us. This means your Facebook feed will be fundamentally different from that of an unbeliever. Politics is coming. There's going to be an election in 2020. Anybody know that? Yeah, have, have you watched the news lately? Have you seen your, Google feed, your Facebook feed lately? An election's coming. I want to challenge you, church. Don't be a part of the mess. Whoever you're going to vote for, don't be a part of the mess. You don't have to call the person you disagree with or whatever. You don't have to send that on or share that post that's simply undermining and attacking. Just let it go. Speak good and speak of the Lord and let it go. Perhaps the most difficult time to obey is when you yourself are slandered or when someone takes up a reproach against you. Reproach means to place a burden upon someone. It means to speak a word of derision or a word of doubt in someone else's ear that makes them guilty in the court of public opinion, whether it's right or not. It means to bring up or make something up in order to undermine someone else. That's a reproach. What do we do when that happens? To the best of our ability, we endeavor to be at peace with all men. We do what Jesus did. Dwelling in the presence of God means dealing with the attacks of the world like Jesus did, who was oppressed, who was afflicted, but he did not open his mouth, Isaiah 53, 7. Instead, he rested in the presence of God all the way to the cross so that he could rescue you and me. And finally, in verses 4, in verse 4a and b, we see that the one who dwells with the Lord has to be clear in his allegiance to God. The, the reprobate, he, he doesn't want to carouse with them, he doesn't want to be a part of their activities, he does not like their wicked deeds. That is one and perhaps the most likely interpretation, although there's a, another interpretation that is possible in this text and I want to share it with you because I think it's plausible in fact perhaps even likely the verse might actually say despicable is he in his own eyes worthy to be despised in other words it may not actually be talking about the wicked but his view of himself and he views his own flesh and his own humanity and he looks at other people of God and he says I want to take the low place so the people of God may be honored You can put me taking out the trash, you can put me behind the scenes, mopping up the floors, thank you Donna and Terry, with the baptism. You put me wherever you want me, because I just want to honor the people who fear the Lord, because I also fear the Lord. My allegiance, more than anything else, is to God. It's it's not to family it's not to career, it's not to country. Yes, I have allegiances to those things, but when they threaten to contend with my allegiance to God, God always wins. His people always win. In verses four C and following, the end of the last line of verse four and the first two lines of verse five, they show us that the one who dwells with the Lord is honorable in his dealings with others. In the last part of verse 4, we find that he swears or makes a promise with an oath to God to his own hurt. In other words, the one who dwells in the presence of the Lord would rather be harmed than harm someone else. His yes is yes, even when the costs aren't what he anticipated. He stays and fights for his marriage. She stays and fights for her marriage. It means that you do this when it's worse and not better when he is in sickness and not in health. It means that you are now striving to be the mom or the dad that you told God that you would be if he would let you have a little boy or a little girl. And now you've got all that responsibility and all that stress and those 3 a.m. feedings and you don't know what to do and the world tells you you're a failure. And it means you hang in there and fight for that little child that God gave you. And you love them in the gospel. And you keep nourishing them in songs of the gospel and the word of God. It means that mission trip that you told God that you were going to take once you retired or had a little more time or whatever that next thing was. And now you're in that season of life, but now you've got grandkids and now you've got this other thing to maintain and this other thing. It means you finally stop and say, God, I'm going for you where you're taking me. I'm going to take that trip. It means that gift that you told God you would make when you got that promotion or that new job or that raise that you stay faithful to God and you give it. It means letting your yes be yes, even when it costs you something. You see, the one who dwells with the Lord would gladly decrease and even suffer so that others may prosper and the glory of Christ may be made known. And we see this in the way that someone handles money. Loving God and neighbor always comes before making a quick dollar. Now, in the Old Testament, charging reasonable interest in a business transaction with a a foreigner was totally permissible. But you did not charge interest to a brother or sister or someone who was poor. You didn't take advantage of people in their time of poverty. In other words, just give them a gift. Somebody's down and hurting and you've got more than they've got? Well, just give them a gift. Oh, I can't afford to give them a gift. I'm really going to need that money at some point. Give them an interest-free loan and move on. But instead, what was happening often among the people of God is they were using the poverty of people to prosper themselves. We see this in payday lending and car title loan lending and a variety of other ways in our culture, trying to take advantage of those who are poor. And finally, the law forbids taking a bribe. Exodus 23, verse 8 is where we find that. Why does the law forbid taking a bribe? Because it puts us, rather than the truth, at the center of our decision making. You say, well, I'm not taking a bribe. That would never happen. My great uncle was killed in a drunk driving accident, and the man who hit my great uncle happened to be the son of the judge in the area. So they moved the trial. But that didn't work, because then the jurors started getting compensation for their vote. And they had to declare a mistrial. Bribes still happen in the 21st century. You say, well, it's it's not money. I wouldn't take money for somebody. Would you take gossip? Would you take a line or a lie and believe it so that you'd have a one-up on somebody else and then they'd owe you one later? Brothers and sisters, we've got to be pure in our conduct in order to know the presence of God. And for those who are pure in their conduct, and know the goodness of God's presence. We've got to believe the promise of God, verse 5, because it's not always easy to live this way, is it? It's not easy to live this way in a world that attacks you. The standard for dwelling in the presence of God is the highest standard of quality that there is. Even the greatest companies in the world that manufacture products have something called an error rate. You make cans at the factory, and they'll accept so many cans not conforming to the standard until they have to shut the machine down and start it over. You know what God's error rate is? Zero. To dwell with the Lord, we've got to be pure like the Lord, and we've got to do it in a world and in our own humanity that shouts at us every day that we should just ignore God and throw off His righteousness and not worry about it. Dwelling with the Lord means living a life that is diametrically opposed to the world and what our flesh wants. But look at the promise of verse 5. When you are fighting for holiness, even when you're under attack, the one who does these things will never be shaken. To be shaken means to be thrown into turmoil. Like the disciples after Jesus calmed the stormy sea, when you enter the presence of the one who made it all and tells the sea where it ends and where the seashore begins, you will not be shaken. The one who is pure in heart is upheld by the Lord. He's hidden in his fellowship. Nothing from the outside, no misfortune can cause his overthrow. And this morning, some of you in this room might say, that is not me. All my life is, is shaken. In fact, you might say that it's in a blender. Just shake, 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 and shake. My life isn't just in turmoil. It is turmoil. Look up turmoil in the Webster's and there's my picture. Every little inconvenience in life drives me crazy. All I care about is my circumstances in the moment, never knowing the goodness of God, but always chasing after lesser goodnesses that never satisfy my desire for the good. Perhaps your life is in turmoil because you've looked to everything else other than the Lord as a sure and steady anchor in the storms of life. Perhaps you've prayed a thousand times, but you've never said, as David says, God, search me and try me and see if there be any wrong way within me and cleanse me from the inside out. When we dwell with the Lord in holiness, we are unshakable. And those who dwell with the Lord must be pure in heart. That, of course, poses a problem, doesn't it, church? It's a a problem for the pastor. It's a problem for every person in this room. Because I believe we can all say there's times we've walked away from a commitment because it was not convenient. There are times that we've read or heard harmful things and passed them along and become a part of the carnage. There are times we've put our financial security ahead of the gospel even if we haven't taken a bribe or charged interest. There are times that we've taken shortcuts and not done the right thing. Times that our hearts did not pulse with an eager passion for the truth of God. In other words, none of us is qualified to dwell in the steadying presence of the Lord. Not one of us. But guess what? You can. You can know the goodness of abiding in the presence of God. Why? Because Jesus himself qualifies us and compels us to live in and for him. Where we failed, Christ did not fail. He is the perfect fulfillment of Psalm 15. Which, interestingly enough, if you notice, keeps saying he, he, he. Singular. Not they, but he. Who is the one who did Psalm 15 without error? It wasn't you. It wasn't me. It was Jesus. And while we could never get to the tent of God... John 1.14 tells us that God the Son came down and He dwelt with us. Literally, He pitched His tent with us. So we could not get up to Him, so God came down to us. And He offered us life in the presence of God. And He did it by living a perfect life in obedience to His Father so that He could forgive our sins, give us new lives, and let us know the presence of God. David writes about this king. Who would come and rescue us in Psalm 21, 7. The king trusts in the Lord. And through the loving kindness of the Most High, he will not be shaken. He's talking about the king who would come. And even though he would go into the garden of Gethsemane. And his sweat would turn into drops of blood under the adversity that he faced. He would not relent in obeying his father so that he could rescue you. Jesus is the King who unfailingly relied on the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit to rescue His people. Jesus is this King. Jesus is the one who swears to His own hurt so that you could prosper. Jesus is the one who freely empties Himself of His great riches so that the poor can be made rich. Jesus is the one who never once stumbled on the road to Calvary for the joy set before Him that he would obey his Father even on the cross and know the fullness of joy that comes from belonging to God. And the evidence, church, that you know this King is not that you walk an aisle, pray a prayer, get baptized, and then disappear. The evidence that this is true of you is not that you have a perfect life, but that you refuse to remain in a state of impurity. As Matt Chandler has said, it is okay to not be okay, but it is not okay to stay that way. It is okay to not be okay, but it is not okay to stay that way. And some of you here this morning don't know the fullness of the joy, of the presence of God, cuz you've been stuck and almost resolved to stay that way. And today is the day of repentance. Today is the day of confession. Because Christ has come and poured out His Spirit everywhere you go, not just on Sunday morning, can be a place of dwelling with God. And if we belong to Him, if we've been declared righteous on the basis of what Christ has done, then the Spirit of God gives you liberty, freedom, we just sang about, to confess your sins. Is there someone you've sinned against? Confess it. Is there someone you're harboring bitterness in your soul about? Then forgive them. Some of you this morning, in just a moment, as we as our instrumentalists come and our musicians prepare to sing, some of you this morning need to come and do business with God so that you can know God who is good. This is the work of abiding in Christ, John 15, 6. If anyone does not abide in me, then he's thrown out and he dries up and he's cast into the fire but if you keep his commandments you'll abide in Christ's love and for some of you today is the day to stop chasing everything else the world says is good and to ask with David how can I dwell in your presence and to conclude that you can't but through Christ you can and lay down your life for the good of the one who gave his life for you so whatever it is you need to do this morning I I know in a church this size that there's there's backbiting and there's there's gossip and there's anger and there's bitterness it's true in every church in America There's there's people that harmed you or wronged you and you haven't been able to lay it down. There's people that you wronged and you know you did and you just need to confess it and get freedom and wholeness. If there's anything like that going on in your family, in your church life, in your Sunday school class, then this psalm would urge us to remember that whatever I'm hanging on to that would prevent me from knowing the goodness of God is foolish and not worth it. And today's the day to come and lay it down and give God first place. In our lives. Would you pray with me? King Jesus. Who may abide in your tent. Who may walk around where you are. Who may live where you live. Only Jesus. And only the ones who have been rescued by the blood of Jesus. So God I, I pray this morning would be a morning of purification. God, I pray this time together would be a season of checking our allegiances and asking, to whom am I giving my life? God, may it be said of North Roanoke Baptist Church, there's a bunch of people who are marked off for Jesus by their obedience, by their confession, their repentance, their forgiveness, and they're moving forward together for the cause of Christ in the world and the sake of the gospel made known among all nations. God, you're a great God. You're infinitely greater than we are, and yet you welcome us into your presence. And so I ask, pray, I pray, God, if there's anyone here who doesn't know the fullness of joy of living where you live, that today would be the day. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.